I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 30, verses 14 through 26. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my home and country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. This is God's word. Like a modern movie, this passage sets us in the middle of a story. And so we're going to have to refer back to past events in order to interpret properly the current events that we just read about. So let's talk about the past Jacob had fled for his life. We looked at that last time. Jacob left his home, all that he knew, fled to Padanaram, where he met his uncle Laban. He served his uncle Laban for 20 years. Now Laban, uh, for for that time period, gave Jacob a dose of his own deceptive, duplicitous medicine. Jacob was a difficult man, I'm sorry, Laban was a difficult man and a manipulative man. Uh, And in those 20 years that Jacob served Laban, uh, Jacob married Laban's two daughters. He married Leah, the older one, and he married Leah uh, because he was tricked into marrying Leah. You can go back and read Genesis chapters 28 and 29 to get the background on that part of the story. But Jacob marries Leah. Uh, Laban's older daughter, because he was tricked into it. And then he marries Rachel, the younger daughter. Rachel's the one he loves. Rachel's the one uh, that he's wanted. Now, as I've said before, God never ordained polygamy. However, Abraham's clan experimented with it like the rest of the culture of that day. And the results were to be expected. As a result of this polygamy, especially in Jacob's family, you have a mixed, complicated family wrought with rivalry, manipulation, heartache, and unmet expectations. Leah knows that she is unloved, but she's fertile. She's able to have many children. 
Rachel, though she is loved by Jacob. She's barren, which in that society at that time would have been a source of shame uh, for a woman. And so uh, this situation gives birth to a tumultuous rivalry, rivalry between these two sisters. And you see in Jacob a pervasive frustration. And you even see an insensitivity in Jacob as he interacts with his two wives, these sisters. Now, look, I'm pretty sure that, that uh, nobody listening, uh, nobody here has probably lived through polygamy. But I think most of us can relate to these dynamics of unmet expectations, of rivalry, manipulation, heartache, and complex, dysfunctional family dynamics. But here's what I hope you're going to see today, that God is good despite the messes we make. God is also good despite the messes we find ourselves in. The gospel redeems our perspective on our dysfunctional family backgrounds and on our broken heritage. And today I want to talk to you about seeing the past and seeing the past clearly, not just considering the past, but considering it with clarity. And finally, I want to discuss how to see your past with Jesus inserted into it. So seeing the past, seeing the past clearly, and seeing your past with Jesus in it. Now, since we all have different, varying family backgrounds, cultural heritages, uh, let's just focus on Israel's past. The nation of Israel had a past, and let's look at that together. So in the passage, as we begin kind of in the middle of a story, there's this fuss over mandrakes, right, between Leah and Rachel. Why is that? Well, mandrakes were known to the ancients as an aphrodisiac, right? literally in the old Hebrew, a love fruit. Mandrakes were believed to induce fertility. So you can, you can understand what the fuss is about. Uh, by this point, Leah, although she has many sons, is no longer fertile, whereas Rachel is still barren. And so the episode of the Mandrakes provides a glimpse into this tense rivalry, rivalry uh, between these two sisters. But we backtrack uh, several years back to Genesis chapter 28 and events recorded in Genesis chapter 29. Leah has four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. If you look at uh, the Hebrew behind Reuben and Simeon and Levi, as with her later sons, Issachar and Zebulun, you discover those, those names connote Leah's longing for Jacob's love, which she would never receive. Now, Rachel, in a spirit of rivalry and jealousy to her older sister, because she, she's infertile, she gives her servant, Bilhah, to Jacob, basically as, as Jacob's concubine. This is exactly what Sarah did with Hagar to Abraham two generations earlier. So Rachel gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob, and by Bilhah, Jacob has two more sons, Dan and Naphtali, who were legally Rachel's sons. 
Well, Leah couldn't let that go. Uh, she's no longer fertile, and so she gives her servant, Zilpah, to Jacob as a concubine. And through Zilpah, by Zilpah, Jacob has two more sons, Gad and Asher. And that brings us to the passage today in Genesis chapter 30, the issue with the mandrakes. At some point, Leah becomes fertile again. She buys a knight with her husband Jacob for mandrakes, right? Mandrakes are the currency, and she buys a knight with Jacob from Rachel for mandrakes. And and so Leah is fertile again, and she gives birth to Issachar, and then later to Zebulun, and finally to a little girl named Dinah. That poor little girl, she had 12 brothers. Anyway, at some point, we are told in Genesis chapter 30, Rachel finally becomes fertile, and she conceives, and she gives birth to a son, to Joseph. Later, after the family relocates and moves back to Canaan, Rachel would give birth to Benjamin, but would die in labor. That's a synopsis of the family's history. So ancient Israel had a complicated past, had a dysfunctional beginning right? By Jacob, four women, two of them conflicted sisters, produce the 12 tribes of Israel. And you know, it's the whole situation is depraved enough to make for a binge-watching HBO series or a Netflix show. But in the midst of heartbreaking complexity, we find a simple truth. God was with this family. God blessed this family for their good and for his eternal purposes. We see evidence of this in verse 17 where we're told God listened to Leah and she conceived. And again in verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. These are two women who did not ask to be married to the same man. Uh, And yet, in the midst of that, despite their rivalry, despite their competitive nature, despite the superstition about the mandrakes, God is still good to them. You see, the Bible's authors were transparent about brokenness. You see this. This is consistent throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, For any of you who are skeptical towards biblical Christianity, the, the Bible is always transparent about its history, about the broken nature of the people it talks about. Not only is there a transparency about brokenness, there's also a mindfulness of how God was faithful to broken people. So there's a transparency in the Bible about brokenness, and there's also a mindfulness about God's faithfulness to people, despite the messes they find themselves in, despite the messes that they make. The Bible sees the past clearly, and you have to do the same if you're going to be redeemed from your broken past, from your broken family dysfunction, from your broken heritage. Don't we all come from families, everybody in the room, don't we all come from families with tarnished pasts? Right? Can't we all point to shameful incidents, to sad periods of time in which we 
or our ancestors were in conflict, were oppressed, or were the oppressors. Some of us look back in our own lives and see divorce or see domestic abuse. Some of us look back one, two, three generations and we find poverty and migration, emigration. Uh, fr frankly, all, in this country, in America, we, we all basically come from immigrants, right? And, and what makes people immigrants? Usually poverty and oppression. Some of us look back decades and maybe centuries into our families past, our ancestors, our heritage, and we see oppression, slavery, and genocide. Or we look back into our past and we see that our ancestors were the committers of the oppression, of the slavery, of the genocide. How do you acknowledge your broken past without being crippled by it? How do you acknowledge your broken past without living in guilt or shame or just becoming a cynic or a pessimist? How do you acknowledge your broken heritage and your family's background without being crippled by it for the rest of your life? Here's how. It's by changing the way you interpret events. It's by changing the way you see the past. It's by developing a redeemed perspective. C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. <clears throat> Think back to a time when you were a child and you were lying in bed in a dark room. The things that you're afraid of in the dark or the shapes that you can't quite decipher or explain that make you uncomfortable in a dark room, those things, those shapes become less intimidating, don't they? Once they are revealed for what they are as the sunlight begins to come in the room in the morning. As the light comes in, as the light turns on, the things you're afraid of in the dark become less intimidating or they're revealed for what they truly are. And so the Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Christian worldview which in essence is this, that God, despite your brokenness, is with you and is for you. That worldview, when, when you adopt that worldview by trusting Jesus Christ, by following Jesus Christ, by accepting his outlook, this new worldview systematically reinterprets every dark corner, every shady episode of your past. Now listen to this. Events don't change. The people and the, 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 the characters in your story, they don't change. The facts remain the facts. You don't rewrite. Uh, you don't write a new story. The events don't change, but how you see them does change. 
God may not have removed you from a dysfunctional circumstance any more than he removed Jacob or Leah or Rachel from their circumstance. But, just like them, God listened to you and remembered you. In the dysfunction, in the brokenness, God was there. He heard you. And he remembered you in the dysfunction. So we begin to make sense of our background and of our heritage in the light of the gospel, of this concept that though we're sinners, God is for us. God is with us. We begin to see the past clearly, which means we become honest about our dysfunction and at the same time become aware of God's goodness even in the midst of the dysfunction. Seeing the past clearly is being honest about the dysfunction and all the time aware of God's goodness, even in the midst of it. If all you see in your past is dysfunction, if that's all you can see, I want to say this gently, but if, if dysfunction is all you see, you're not seeing clearly, friend. Again, if all you see in your past it's nothing but positive stuff, right? If, if you don't see any dysfunction in your past, any brokenness in your heritage, again, you are not seeing clearly. We tend to either demonize or idolize our families. When we look at our heritage, we are prone to either demonize it or idolize it. If you are the demonizing kind... If you look at the past, you look at your family, you look at your heritage, or, or you look at your country or your subculture, and all you see, all you see is negative, all you see is dysfunction, is probably because you refuse to see God's goodness in it. If you are the idolizing kind, if you look at your family, if you look at your parents, if you look at your heritage, if you look at your country and your culture and all you see are good things, are positive things, are things you're proud of and excited about, things that make you warm and fuzzy inside, that's probably because you refuse to see their dysfunction. You refuse to see your own dysfunction. We have to understand that sin refuses to interpret things in God's light. Sin refuses to look at the past with clarity. And so your view of the past, your view of your family, your view of your culture is imbalanced. You see, the demonizing allows you the upper hand. You demonize people in your past. You demonize circumstances. That allows you to keep the upper hand so that you can always sit in judgment on other people and what they've done. And you will remain a cynical and proud person. The idolizing, on the other hand, that allows you to ignore the hurt, to ignore the injustice. And so you remain ignorant and naive. 
but you can actually come to terms. This is the good news. You can actually come to terms with your past without being fearful of what you find in it and without being cynical because of what you find in it. And in order to do that, in order to come to terms with your past in a productive, healthy, balanced, transformative, healing way, you have to see Jesus in your past. You've got to allow Jesus Christ to enter into the story of your family or of your heritage. And here's what I mean by that. God was not ashamed of humanity's heritage. He was not ashamed of his people Israel's past. Now, as a just God, he was rightly offended by humanity's record and by Israel's record. He was rightly offended because he is a just God. But you know what? He's also a loving father, and so he was deeply hurt. He was righteously offended, but he was also deeply hurt. And so he did something about it, and this is what God did. He entered into our heritage. Jesus is not only known in the New Testament as the Son of God, he's also known as the Son of Man. And that title, the Son of Man, is, very, is just as important. Because what we discover about the Son of Man is that Jesus' family heritage, Jesus' human family heritage was sprinkled with shady individuals and sad tragedies. If you read the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, you read this. The book of of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we already know that Abraham, uh, <laughs> he was a man to walk in faith. And yet Abraham was a broken man. Uh, and we know of David the same thing, a broken man, a man of faith, but a broken man. Now, as you begin to read in Matthew chapter 1 of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you immediately discover two names, Judah and Tamar. You find out later in Genesis chapter 38, and I'm just going to give you a very brief summary, Judah slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because he thought she was a prostitute. That's all I'm going to say. You can read the details in Genesis chapter 38. And that's pretty messed up. And there they are, Judah and Tamar, in Christ's genealogy. Because Tamar would end up having two sons by Judah, by that situation. And Perez is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You keep reading in Matthew chapter 1, the same genealogy, another name pops up, Rahab. Now, if you read Joshua chapter 6, you discover that Rahab, before she entered into the family of Israel, was originally a prostitute in Jericho. And there she is in Christ's genealogy. I'll go further. There's David. There's David who broke every one of the Ten Commandments in taking Bathsheba to be his wife. And yet David's sons are in Christ's genealogy. I'll go further. Manasseh, the worst king of them all. In Christ's genealogy. Now, the point of it, I could go on, but the point of this is simple. Jesus 
entered, the Son of God entered into a broken heritage. Jesus put his name forever into a broken family line, into a corrupt family line. But he was not ashamed of that heritage. And yet he didn't make excuses for it. He neither demonized his past as a human being, nor did he idolize it. But he was deeply saddened. He was deeply saddened by humanity's heritage and by Israel's heritage, and he did something about it. He stared it in the face with grief and with determination, and he said, no more. That's it. It ends here. It ends with me, and it ends now. And he took all of the dysfunction, the divorce, the abuse, the separation, the injustice, the oppression, the rivalry, the rebellion. He took all of it and he carried it to the cross with him. And he killed it all on the cross. And his resurrection from the dead promises you, if you trust him, promises you that your restoration is coming, friends. And that your healing from the dysfunction, from the oppression, that your healing can begin right now. You see, you may be a broken person and you may have found yourself in a mess that other people made for you. But the Bible says you're still guilty as a sinner. But Jesus on the cross removed your guilt. And that's so critical because once your guilt has been removed, you are welcomed by Jesus into a new family, into a new household, the family of God. And this is the place, this home, this family is where we heal from our dysfunction and learn to live by grace. This is, we, this is where we stop demonizing the past and the people in our past. This is where we stop idolizing our past and the people in our past. This is where we begin to see clearly. This is where we begin to confess what is broken and sinful in our past. This is we, where we begin to offer forgiveness, to apply mercy and grace to each other. This is where we learn to live by grace in the household of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ redeems our perspective on dysfunctional backgrounds and on our broken heritage. So listen, stop demonizing your past and begin to see traces of God's goodness in it. Stop idolizing your past and begin to admit the brokenness that you've ignored. Friends, let Jesus Christ shine his light on all of it. And over time, 
dark corners, hidden episodes that you have ignored all along or that you have despised all along by the light of his grace and truth will take on new meaning to you. Again, the facts won't change. The people, the people in the story don't go away. The story, the facts, the history remains. And yet your perspective on it by the light of Christ's truth, your perspective will change. You will see it clearly. And you'll begin to heal. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask for faith to trust the Lord Jesus with our backgrounds, with our dysfunctional backgrounds, with our broken heritage. We ask that you would allow the Lord Jesus to give us a new perspective, a redeemed perspective, to transform us by the renewing of our minds as we look back into our history to see your goodness, that you have listened to us, that you have heard us. Despite the messes we've made, despite the messes we found ourselves in. Father, we are not asking you to change the past, but we are asking you to heal us as we begin to see it in the light of your grace. With the help of your son, Jesus Christ, we praise you that Jesus was not too proud to stay on his throne, but that he humbled himself and entered in to our broken, dysfunctional story and has redeemed us out of it. And it's in his name that we thank you and praise you. Amen.